KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. First, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Flashpoint podcast. Welcome to the Flashpoint family. Would you do me a favor? Would you log on to the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or whatever podcast platform that you use and subscribe to Flashpoint? All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. Now let's get to it. This week, the focus is victims' rights. Pennsylvanians voted to incorporate Marcy's Law into the state constitution, but a lawsuit stands in the way. Marcy's Law would create 15 new crimes that affect eight different sections of the Pennsylvania Constitution. And criminal justice advocates are jumping on, too. There can't be a victim until there's a convict. That is quite insulting to people who have been raped and murdered. What the amendment would do and why the court has postponed it for now. He made history by snagging an at-large seat on Philadelphia City Council, typically held by Republicans. And I said, if I win, it's proof that every vote counts. Councilperson-elect Kendra Brooks reveals her strategy, motivation, and top plans. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is Marcy's Law. On Tuesday, Pennsylvania voted 2-1 to to amend the state constitution to add the existing Crime Victims Bill of Rights statute. But the ACLU had sued. And days before the vote, got a court order blocking the change pending the outcome of its lawsuit. The organization joins criminal justice advocates who say the amendment infringes the rights of the accused. Does it? Or does it simply make sure victims are not ignored? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Liz Randall. She is legislative director for ACLU of Pennsylvania. We also have Michael Court, a criminal defense attorney, professor, and columnist. And on the phone, we have Jennifer Storm, victim advocate for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And finally, we have Lakeisha Anthony, our survivor and victim rights advocate. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you. I want to start with Jennifer. So we had 70% of voters vote yes to the ballot question to amend the Constitution. What would that amendment do specifically? We're so thrilled that we had 1.7 million people come out and vote in favor of Marcy's Law. Marcy's Law is a constitutional amendment. So what it does is it's taking existing statutory that victims have in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and elevating them to that as a constitutional right. And this is going to do two things for victims. A, it's going to express as a Commonwealth that our values dictate that victims' rights matter and that their voices matter. And so elevating them to that of constitutional right puts them on par with other rights that we value in the Constitution, right? So it's, it's that value statement, first and foremost. And secondarily, it gives victims enforcement, which is the legal standing in court. As it states today, if you are a victim of crime and one of these rights that you have in law is violated, there's absolutely zero recourse. You can do nothing. You cannot even approach a judge and say, Your Honor, I wanted to be at the the sentencing of my uh, rapist and I was denied that right or I was failed a notification. The courts won't even hear you because you you don't have what's called legal standing. And Mm. so that's what the enforcement mechanism is. But Elizabeth, I mean... 
Here we have the ACLU. Uh, you guys secured a court order that pauses the implementation, even the certification of the votes on this. Tell me what grounds you were able to secure that that court order. As far as the our legal challenge uh, was actually filed by the League of Women Voters. Mm-hmm. The ACLU served as co-counsel on the case. What the temporary pause does uh, is to prevent any certification of the question until uh, the constitutional question is resolved. And so by that, I mean, we were concerned that under the Pennsylvania Constitution, in order for voters to amend the Constitution, they Mm -hmm. are given the constitutional right to vote on any amendment that affects a different section of the Constitution separately. So if you have multiple provisions and they affect different parts of the Constitution, every voter gets to select which one of those provisions they want to actually amend into the Constitution. Our concern is that Marcy's Law would create 15 new crimes that affect eight different sections of the Pennsylvania Constitution. And as a result, those should have been put on the ballot as separate questions, that voters have the right to select individual provisions that affect different parts of the Constitution separately. And so that's what the Commonwealth Court judge ruled in our favor. Yeah. She agreed that, that there was sufficient question that it merited further review. And I know Michael published... Uh, you know, an article saying you were against this amendment and you had specific reasons. Yes, it's not just me. It's the law that's against this amendment. It's a couple of things. One, this proposed law is unconstitutional. It's unnecessary and it's uneducated. And I don't mean to cast any aspersions on victims, but forget about emotions. In regard to the law and criminal law in particular, there's no such thing. Thing as victims' rights. There are protections. There are safeguards. For example, you look at the Bill of Rights to the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> it talks about, and I hear somebody chuckling in the background, and I'm just going to keep it moving. What it comes down to is this. The Bill of Rights talks about protections from uh, the government, not protections by the government. It also talks about due process. So let me just spend 30 seconds going down my list. The reason why I say it's unconstitutional is because the state constitution under Article 11 says that you just can't have a bag full of stuff and have mm-hmm. the voters vote for it. That's the first thing on its face. It's also unconstitutional based on the Fifth Amendment, which deals with due process. The fact that you use the term victim is a loaded term. There can't be a victim until there's a convict. And, and let me just pause you there because I want to yeah. I want to get Lakeisha and Jennifer you can both respond to this because yeah. um, and I'll listen without yeah, laughing yeah yeah and and explain what victims have been going through uh, in this and, and I'm not saying that victims don't have rights but maybe they should under the maybe constitution they should. Under and, the and constitution. that's why they're trying to shift the constitution so can you I'll open the floor for you to respond go right ahead sure so this is this is Jennifer so victims absolutely have rights under the law right now it's actually called the crime victims act and in it, it enumerates number of rights that crime victims have. We talk about them as rights. The, the crime victim has the right to receive information about their rights. They have the right to receive notification of proceedings in their criminal case. They have the right to be present at court proceedings. They have the right to be heard at a police sentencing proceeding. They have the right to be heard by the parole board. They have the right to assert any of their other rights. That These are rights. And so I, I'm sorry, I had to chuckle when you say that crime victims don't currently have rights. You're a lawyer. It's Title 18. It's the Crime Victims Act of 1998. They have had these rights on the books for over 20-some years without any of these concerns or issues or questions. And certainly nothing in law today says that there must be a conviction in your case for you to be deemed a victim. And that is quite insulting 
to people who have been raped and murdered and harassed and abused to tell that person that you're not even a victim unless there's a conviction. Out of 100 rape cases, we're lucky if one person goes to jail. You can't predicate rights based on the ability to get a conviction. Victims would be suffering in egregious ways that I don't even want to think of or conceive of if that was really truly how the world was in Pennsylvania today. And that is not how it is. There are real concerns with victims. There are prosecutors who don't take into account anything victims have uh, said or their their own concerns um, when dealing with with uh, very um possibly dangerous accused and so you hear and you think about that there obviously was a need a gap here so the office of victim advocate gets calls every day from victims whose rights are being violated the problem is and the frustration is is that we can't do anything for them if if it's midway through an actual proceeding or or a prosecution then maybe we can reach out to that that ada or that prosecutor or that law enforcement office and say hey this victim wants to be involved why aren't you notifying them xyz Usually we hear from them after the fact, and we can't do anything. I spent an hour and a half on the phone with a woman today who felt so violated by the Chester County District Attorney's Office because not only was her child murdered in the car, shot point blank in the head, she was lied to by the law enforcement. She was lied to by the DA. They ended up taking a guilty plea for third degree and then lied to her about what was going to happen in the proceeding, told her she was going to get restitution she never got, and now I can't do anything for her. Yeah. And, and so your response, because it, there is a balance that needs to happen here with, sure. with defendants as well. How would Marcy's Law address the problem of law enforcement not providing the kind of notification or assistance in the first instance, district attorneys who don't notify victims? Mm-hmm. Our concern is that there's a lot of things that are stipulated within Marcy's Law. The problem is, is that it doesn't address the notification problem, there's no enforcement mechanism for the for the government entities that are responsible for doing the notification. The Crime Victims Act outlines and enumerates all the different parties that have to report mm-hmm. um, and have to notify victims. They want to be included at the front end of the process. I would imagine that that would be the best possible scenario. This Marcy's Law does not provide any enforcement mechanism for district attorneys, for the Office of Victim Advocate, for the Department of Corrections, for the parole board. Anyone who fails to notify or include a victim at the outset... There's no enforcement mechanism for that, nor is there any funding provided for any of these. But there is. Liz, you and I have had this conversation. Legal standing in court is enforcement. So today, if a DA says to a victim, I'm not going to, it doesn't notify a victim, and then the case moves forward, that victim doesn't do anything. They can't even call, they can't even motion the judge because they don't have that vital legal standing. Marcy's Law, the constitutional amendment, will give them legal standing, meaning they can then motion the judge, and the judge will have to hear that. They'll have to look at this victim and then say, yes, they did have a right at hand, and that right is balanced, or that right was violated. And, And it gives... It holds entities accountable because can motion the court. If I, as the Office of Victim Advocate, violate a victim's right, that victim would be able to motion the court and say, OVA violated my right. And, and, and we would be, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and I want to say, I mean, so victims, this would give victims the right to, to petition the court to be yes. heard. Um, but how does this injure? Does this injure, does it really provide any injury to defendants here? If a victim just says, look, 
I just want to no. be considered in this process. The answer is and yes. It, it and I will it quickly. Doesn't. Are you talking to me? Yeah. I, I'm going to let Michael respond to you, Jennifer. Go yeah. right ahead. Um, very quickly. I wanted to respond initially to the point about me saying that victims have no rights. I'm talking about in a criminal law, constitutional law concept. That's why the Bill of Rights talks about what the government can take away from people. In addition, I've been a criminal defense attorney for 25 years. I handle a, in a case an appeal with a trial lawyer allowed the prosecutor throughout the entire trial to refer to the complainant as a victim without any objection from defense counsel. I then appeal, the Superior Court agrees with me, that that person is simply a, quote, alleged victim or a complainant, but not a victim until the person is convicted. So we can engage in emotionalism and hyperbole. I'm speaking as a lawyer, resting my argument on the Constitution. And when I say it's unnecessary, I'm talking about the 1998 Victims' Right Act. We got that legislation. We don't need a constitutional amendment. And then when I talk about it being uneducated, I'm talking about the Bill of Rights focusing on the government not taking away the life, liberty and property of the accused. We can't talk about having a so-called victim on the level of an accused because the government takes away from the defendant, not from the accused. And the one thing that I really want to say before I wrap this up is that the complainant has the right under Marcy's law to deny a discovery request from a defense attorney. So if I find out that an alleged victim is has some emotional issues, uh, has some psychosis, uh, has a conviction in some other state for perjury, that complainant, that alleged victim can say, I'm not going to give you the information. And finally, very quickly, in North Dakota with the Marcy's Law case, the police beat a guy, shot a guy, and arrested the guy for coming at the police first. And the cops said we had to beat him up and shoot him because he was coming at us. Now that that guy has an attorney, his attorney filed for a discovery request requesting the personnel file of the officers. Under Marcy's Law in North Carolina, the officers blocked the defense attorney from getting the person. File. And that's, that's North Dakota, yeah, yeah, exactly. And and any response to that, Jennifer and Lakeisha, because it could it possibly cause this conflict it here. Has. First and foremost, is that victims, yes, they have rights in our statute. They have no enforcement. So, as an attorney, Michael, could you appreciate that if you have a right, but then that right is repeatedly violated by the government? Right, the government is the one who is supposed to afford these rights to victims, and they are oppressing, disenfranchising, marginalizing these victims every day, and victims have no recourse involved. That is what well, you you did ask me, victims. but. Why, is somebody a victim simply because he or she says he's a victim or she's a victim? If there's there have been cases, support. for example, there's, there's a high profile cases where college football players have been accused of egregious sexual assaults against women in college. These college students, football players went to prison. The women came back later and said, my bad, it didn't happen. So it seems to me that we can't just say that somebody's a victim and load rights onto them without any type of due process. One very quick thing. I and I'll let you respond to that in just I, a second. Jennifer. I, I represented a young man who was on video shooting and killing a police officer in a Dunkin's Donut robbery. Horrific crime, heroic police officer. Long story short, I'm on my way to the Criminal Justice Center. A reporter shoves a microphone in my face and says, Mr. Cord, what are you doing? Your cops, your client's a cop killer. It's a brutal murder on videotape. My question to the reporter was this. Okay, sir, we got two options. We either take my client out back for a lynching or we take him upstairs for a trial. It's all about due process. A person is not convicted until after he's tried or she's tried. And I'll let you respond to that. So the rights of the victim don't conflict with the rights of the accused. 
the right to be present in court. First of all, the, the discovery issue that keeps getting way blown out of proportion, that is an existing rule of criminal court procedure. Pennsylvania law does not currently allow or require a victim to be deposed in criminal matters, period. The person's cross-examined at a preliminary happen. hearing. Of course, at the And at hearing. a trial. What do you at mean? We hearing. get this. This is part of discovery. I have cases that I won on appeal because the Commonwealth didn't give me information I requested. So I'm not sure what jurisdiction you're talking about, but in the, the Commonwealth, Commonwealth they is, have yes, to give it up. The Commonwealth is required, absolutely. And, and the so-called victim is a Commonwealth the witness. The victim does not have to respond to you as an attorney or to the rapist or the murderer. On or the, the witness abuser. stand, they do. That's not to, No, they don't. Yes, to your attorney during cross-examination, yes, not for discovery. Discovery goes through the Commonwealth. A preliminary the, hearing the is where the defense and, and, attorney and we'll, engages in discovery. We ask questions at the preliminary hearing to prepare a trial defense. I don't know what you're talking about. And so we'll 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 let that point we'll let that point this rest for now. But this but there is there is definitely this tension here. And I think one of the and let's go back to you, um, Liz, because part of the issue is People may agree with most of and this is one point of this Marcy's Law amendment, the argument that you guys made to get the court to block the current uh, certification is people should be able to tick off. That's Each right. of these rights one by one. Exactly. I mean, I think that that's, um, you know, it's important to underscore the fact that there are some of the provisions in Marcy's Law that are largely identical to some of the provisions that currently exist under the, the Crime Victims Act. Yeah. Uh, but there are additional ones that uh, that we have concerns about, particularly these concerns around the right to refusal, um, constitutionally enforced, um, you know, timely uh, payment for restitution. It's yeah. not clear how that happens if somebody can't afford to pay anything. Um, uh, also, their um, right to a speedy trial. So there are due process concerns that we definitely believe are in conflict with the rights of the accused. That being said... If this had been drafted better, um, then people could go through and sort of like, um, you know, instead of a combo meal, they'd be able to click off individual pieces and just do a cafeteria style selection of which provisions that they think that they would want to amend the Constitution with and which they wouldn't. And, and the voters were not given that option. They were It was all bundled into one one question and asked as an up or down vote how they wanted and and there, there and people had surmised that there would be some confusion though, but it doesn't seem like voters were confused if 1.7 million voted yes. And Lakeisha, I want you to comment on here because there's certain things that victims do deal with that I think Barcy's law and this amendment would address. Could you talk about that a little bit? Many victims have been continuously fighting for their rights to be heard for all of the things that are in the Crime Victims Rights Act. When they do come up, they don't have any recourse to be able to say, hey, this happened and I need someone to do something about it. Ultimately, all I hear are complaints from victims about how they were treated in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the system is actually supposed to be supporting those who have actually experienced crimes. To say that you're not, and I understand. I guess the question is, what is a victim? Is a victim simply a person who says I was victimized or in a court process, is there some burden of proof required? Or do you just say I'm a victim and therefore that's it? I mean, no, can I say, do we require for someone to not be a victim when they're getting victim services? Do you need a conviction? But that's a different. That's we're a, talking about constitutional protections within criminal yeah, proceedings. Yeah, but that, the so, terminology that is used. I realize that. But, there, but the terminology of victim in the instance in. So back to Michael's point is that our concern is that the term victim is used in Marcy's law 
and would then have legally enforceable rights prior to a conviction. So if you give victims a say early in the process before A, there's been it's been proven that a crime indeed occurred. Presumption of innocence. That's right. And, and second, that the person who was charged with that crime did indeed commit yeah. it. You're undermining the presumption of innocence. You flip innocent until proven guilty into guilty until proven innocent. So, so Liz, can you tell me why then there hasn't been one single piece of case law in the 35 states that have constitutional rights for crime victims on the books right now that says what you just said? Yep. So I'll just have to sort of correct. I mean, I understand that there's 35 states that may have, mm-hmm. okay, right, that have something resembling um, some protections for victims. Marcy's law, however, is only uh, enacted in 10 states. So let's be clear about what it is, the provisions that are from the model language from the Marcy's law for all campaign versus what actually other states have done. Uh, that being said, there actually have been, to some extent, some challenges in some states. The concern, however, I would say, is that the that Marcy's law has the bulk of the these amendments ha- were added to state constitutions in 2018, there were like I think there was one in 2017, mm-hmm. a few in 2016. This is relatively new. We had it was enacted in California first in, in 2008. Eight. Went through a bit of a lag time 2012. So there's been a smattering. We don't have the bulk of the states that of the ten have not really been enacted for very long. So, and I mean, so we don't take, know. We don't so know. Is, is there point. any case law? Is there any case? Law any that case shows law, Jennifer? I don't know where. The, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how you think how quickly something might move to the through a process. And the two of, cases well, where it was overturned, like there were on procedural issues. Well, the two cases was procedural. Yeah, there's yeah. not yeah. been one substantive challenge in court that has proven that a Marcy's law right infringes upon the rights of the accused, and it's been in, the, in 11 years. That's definitely enough time for any of our states to have their courts work through a process. It right, doesn't really, happen. I, I, the sky is not 11, falling. Once in 11 years, just to be clear, not all of those amendments have been in for and have been enacted for 11 years. So I just want to be clear about how many, how long we've had. To so, actually, true, but I mean, you can't point to one single case. And in those other 35 states, the things like the right to be notified, the right to be a victim, those are all in those constitutions. And there just hasn't been one single case. Illustrate. Give me some case law. You guys are attorneys. Show me where this has actually hurt the rights of the accused. I don't think case law necessarily is the only standard that we've seen in practice. There can be a lot of um, a lot of problems and a lot of abuses of yeah. how this happens within a normal court proceeding that is never going to advance beyond what happens on a day-to-day basis in terms of case law. And the, I think basis, that's a, the basis of all case law is the Constitution. It's clear that the voters have sided with making changes to the state constitution and right now we're on pause and so where's the current status of the case Liz? so the next step is that uh we will return to commonwealth court uh, to argue the case on its merits and so we like we'll really dig into the substantive constitutional questions there's no doubt that whether we win or lose it'll get appealed back up to the supreme court and their ruling will be the final word and so this could go on for at least a year, probably a little longer. We're not sure exactly how long the process would take. The courts could move it more quickly, um, but it could it could take a bit. What are you, Jennifer? What are you, Lakeisha, going to be doing uh, as you wait for this ruling? On my side for OBA, we're going to keep, obviously, the education on the awareness up. We're going to start talking uh, to all 67 counties, start training them on what victims' rights assertion looks like in court on how a, a pro se filing motion would look like. We're going to start moving forward like, like Marcy's Law is happening because while Seven million Americans in Pennsylvania have voted in favor of this, and we believe that the court will uphold um, the opinion that this is the right and just thing to do. Are other states looking at this? Because, I mean, this, it seems like, you know, Pennsylvania 
uh, this ruling, if it's actually on the the merits versus a procedural, will this have nas- national impact? Oh well, it's not. So I want to be clear. It's on the um, the merits of the procedure of yeah, the procedure constitutionality, issue, correct? Issue. But it has been uh, Marcy's law has been uh, voided in two states based on similar arguments, and um, and so that would you know. I, I also though want to just clarify that you know the if at the end we win. What will happen is that the the court will have said in the in the event that we win that that question should have never been on the ballot because it was posed to the voters in an unconstitutional manner. It did not give them the full range of the choices that they are legally and constitutionally entitled to. And so the idea that somehow because there have been people who have voted for the package deal, the combo meal, if you yep. will, um, that that does not change what voters were originally entitled to under the Constitution when we amend it. And because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. The voters clearly have spoken. They want more rigorous protection for crime victims. So no matter the outcome of this lawsuit, how do we accomplish that, regardless of the outcome of the suit? I think certainly there's a good argument to be made based on the votes in the legislature, how much support there is to shoring up um, protections for victims, making sure that there's funding. This process has taken three years from start to finish to get a constitutional amendment on the ballot. In the meanwhile, they... There could have been a lot of work done to amend the existing law and to pass, um, you know, pass more money in the budget to help these um, offices deliver the services and the notifications that victims want. The fact that 70 percent might have voted in favor of it is not really impressive unless those 70 percent understood. If you ask them, hey, what's this Fifth Amendment stuff? Hey, what's this Article 11 stuff? So the fact that 70 percent did it doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do. And when we talk about so-called victims, they have safeguards, they have protections, they have security from the system. But to elevate them to the level of an accused, we call criminal cases Commonwealth versus Smith. It's the state against the individual and that individual's rights cannot be violated primarily first and foremost presumption of innocence calling people victims and putting them on the level of a suspect undermines that violates the fifth amendment unconstitutional the attorney general is the one that crafted the question um, we trust his judgment he's, he's a brilliant legal mind so we trust that he knew what he was doing he's going to defend this case uh, wholeheartedly the governor supports us the legislature overwhelmingly support us We went through three years of rigorous stakeholder engagement, and we overwhelmingly passed. And then 1.7 Pennsylvanians voted in favor of it. So this is a it's a it's obviously incredibly supported and much needed. And final word. Ultimately, we need to ensure that we give victims what they need and what they're asking for. If 1.7 million people said something that they want, then we need to give it to them. Thank you to Jennifer Storm, to Liz Randall, Michael Cord and Lakeisha Anthony for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. Next up, she made history becoming the first third-party candidate to snag a minority seat on Philly City Council. I said, if I win, it's proof that every vote counts. At-large council person-elect Kendra Brooks is here. We'll be right back. I'm Matt Leon, sports reporter and anchor here at KYW News Radio. Talking to athletes, coaches, people in Philly sports every day, you find out they have incredible stories to tell. So I started a podcast, a weekly conversation with someone you should know more about. It's called One on One with Matt Leon. Subscribe now wherever you listen. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks, all. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Our newsmaker of the week made history on Election Day when she became the first third-party candidate to ever 
snag one of the two at-large Philadelphia City Council seats typically filled by Republicans. A progressive, Kendra Brooks is a newcomer to politics, but she's raised more than 140 grand and convinced voters to try something new. Councilperson-elect Kendra Brooks is here. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. This is an amazing win. Have you had a full night's sleep yet? I think I did last night. (laughs) (laughs) Well, congratulations on that. I know the grind to the day of had to be insane. How does it feel to have made history? I think it's just starting to sink in. Like my children and my siblings and my parents, they're like calling, calling, calling like, oh my God, you're in the paper. Oh my God, you're on the news. So I think it's kind of surreal saying we're going to make history and actually making history is an amazing feeling and we're here. So I I still haven't process all of these feelings that I have right now. This is something that Philadelphia hasn't seen, like a independent candidate come in and make it. First, I, I want to wind back. When did you develop the strategy that, you know what, I'm not going to run as a Democrat, I'm going to be an independent, and this is what we're going to do, and we're going we're gonna to make it? There have been conversation about this for quite some time. Um, I think I was approached about this possibility officially, maybe about a year and a half ago, and I was kind of pondering. Ron Whitehorn is a wonderful mentor to me. He brought it up to me like two or three years ago. And I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. And just left it there. Like, oh, okay. But then working families came back to me like about, I want to say about a little bit more than a year ago and had the suggestion. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a really good idea. That's something I could get behind. And here we are. Philadelphia was your first official home. So you're a Philly woman, basically. You have kids, the whole nine. You were also an activist as well. Yes. What made you say, you know what, I want to run for office? Like, was this always something you dreamt of doing or was this something that shifted because of times and issues? Um, more shifted because of time and issues. This is definitely not something I always wanted to do. You can ask many folks. I'd be like, oh, I'm never going to run for office. This is horrible. I don't want to do that. But being an activist and community organizer, like we're continually fighting around issues and we come against roadblocks. And my first peep into considering politics is when Mayor Kenny put me on a nominating panel for the school board. And I was very intrigued behind the process. And I was like, oh, this is not that bad. So the, the official ask from the Working Families Party to possibly do this came right after I'm sitting on the mayor's panel. And then at the time, there were so many women that I knew that were running for city council at large as Democrats. So that definitely wasn't my pathway. I actually hosted an event for them in January, maybe January of this year, because they were still in the fight. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were still running for office. And I had an opportunity to meet some amazing women that were looking to change Philadelphia. And then it it became like, maybe maybe I will, you know, move forward with this run as an independent. And here we are. I mean, you came in basically sixth in the number of votes. You beat out Councilman O, although he made it in because of the minority party rule. But you did pretty well in getting um, a number of votes. What was the strategy to sort of making that happen? Because you also had cash. You had real money. You know, political education is the most important thing. As educated myself and community organizer, it's important that we educate folks to the why. As a community organizer, in order to get people motivated and passionate about issues, they need to know why. And why is this? why does this affect them? And in what way they can get involved? And I, we felt that the same thing was important for voting. In my neighborhood, in my community, and folks that I know around the city have been disen- disenchanted with voting. People feel like their votes didn't count, starting from the presidential election and then some other elections where the same people keep getting elected. And it just seems like the system is working against them. And here it is, this opportunity for something 
different. But the political education piece was the most important thing. So we continue to talk to people about why should you vote? Why work in families? What does it mean to split the ticket? Understanding the city charter. And that was the heaviest lift. And we targeted a younger subset of voters. Mm. Folks that aren't as entrenched in, you know, voting a straight ticket was part of our strategy. Uh, But also we were able to tap into some, a lot of older voters that just have been tired, you know, sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. And you explain to them, like, by voting straight ticket, the, the, the Republicans just get in. They don't really have to run for their seats. And people were really impressed with that message. And it resonated and they continued to share it. And I think that worked. It really worked. Yeah. And the investment that we had to put into that political education was expensive. Yeah. And I have to say, I, I, I got one of your notices in my mailbox <laughs> about Kendra Brooks and Nicholas O'Rourke. We heard radio ads, TV ads. We've never really seen independent or even Republicans work this hard in uh, in a general. I mean, folks are sitting on the sidelines taking notes now. It's like y'all flipped the game. Well, we did old school community organizing, knocking doors, sharing information, phone banking. Like this is like traditional political work that, you know, people haven't really had to do. Yeah, we just. Use old school methods to do something, you know, to create history. What was your your motivation here? My children. I have five women looking up to me, not just my children. I've always been like that. North Philadelphia soccer mom, everyone, everyone's at my house. I have five daughters, so five times everyone they know um, are always around me and just set an example of what we can do. You know, it's, it's not a like, I've always said it's like bigger than me. Um and all the women that I've touched with my community-based organizing, whether it was in schools, whether it was working with um, women with disabilities, whether it was working with homelessness and housing, like all of these lives, people are looking for something else and they trust me. And that was my motivation. Like if I can do this, I'm setting the example for the next generation and even people in my generation that we can do anything. You had a number of women who are Democrats and call themselves progressive, also supporting you. When you hear the word progressive, what does that mean for you? The crazy thing is like a lot of progressive issues people want to talk about are basically just humanity. Like whether we're talking about funding for public education, that shouldn't be a progressive issue. It should be a people issue. Whether we're talking about affordable, accessible housing, that's a people issue. Homelessness is a serious crisis in the city. And I like to talk about homelessness is, is variations of homelessness. So sometimes we get stuck with, you know, just people living on the streets, but there are people living in unsafe conditions across the city that affect women, children, and just people. Those are the values and stuff that I have been fighting for. And most people believe in a lot of progressive values, but sometimes we get stigmatized by the label, whether it's progressive or uh, what's the other one, socialists and all these other words they want to throw out to to describe me and some of my colleagues. For me, I'm human. Like these are real life issues and we need to continue to address them in a way that's making life better for all Philadelphians. Do you think your win was a referendum on city politics? The old school entrenched system of one party politics in the city. Was your win a referendum on that? I think so. Early on, when, when I first started talking about this campaign, people asked me, are you going in the city call to shake things up or to set policy? And I said, middle of the road. And middle of the road is shaking things up, meaning it's bringing folks to the, con- bringing folks to the table to have the conversation. Because we can't just keep passing the buck. You know, people are struggling here and we need to make sure the city is better. 
And if that means pushing folks that have gotten comfortable to an uncomfortable level, that's what I'm here to do. What's your vision for what you can do with your seat in city council? Being a community organizer, my first thing is uh, getting to know my colleagues. Part of being able to set policy is being able to have conversations with people on things that are most important for them. It's one thing to bring up bills and issues um, just to say you've done it. For me, I want to bring up bills and issues to win. So part of winning is building a coalition of allies to be able to move stuff along. So that's my first plan is like getting to know my colleagues and figure out how we're going to work together. And what are the top issues that you think will be on your agenda first 100 days? Definitely the 10-year tax abatement. Whatever is going to happen with that, we need to, that has been my work for the last two, three years. I've been working on that. Pilots have been something I talked about. Funding for schools. Uh, this We're in the state of emergency with our public schools here. And children shouldn't be going to school in unsafe conditions. It's a crisis. Gun violence. When I talk about prevention, whether it's um, resources for young people in parks and libraries, safety. And when I think about public safety, it's levels to public safety, whether we're talking about gun violence or we're just talking about, you know, safety in the streets. Like, so there's so many. I'm pulling it together. So we have an idea based on the Alliance for a Just Philadelphia. We had eight issues that we were focused on. My next step is to put it, prioritize issues so we can begin to uh, move forward on all of those issues. And most of the things that I ran on, whether it was gun violence, affordable, accessible housing, urban gardening, um, and then share sales. So it's so many different things that we were running on. I still plan on holding true to those things. Is there a lesson that you learned growing up that kind of you will take with you when you walk into city council after you're sworn in? Well, for me, quitting is never an option. I'm never going to quit. I'm going to continue to work hard. If you sign up for something, you got to take it all the way to the end. My girls know that's how I feel. And the other thing is when my stepfather passed away a few years ago, he was like 80 years old. He had a funeral, two funerals, one in Florida where we, where they moved to and one in Philadelphia. And um, the average age of the men at his funeral was like 30. And that spoke to the legacy that he left behind. So uh, my girlfriend brought this to my remembrance the other day that we had a conversation and right now I'm living that dash in between and it needs to count. So for me, walking into office, every moment counts. Every decision that I make counts. And that's what I teach my girls. That's what my stepfather and my mother and father had taught me. Um, and that's how I'm going in the city council. Everything counts. On a lighter note, I got to say that your victory party, I saw some video. It was crunk. <laughs> Kendra, know. it was crunk, girl. Like, unlike any that I have seen. So where does that kind of energy, that that energy come from? I call, like, this is my movement family, mm-hmm. my North Philadelphia family, you know, my works. Everybody came together and we worked hard on this campaign. It wasn't easy. You know, we have multiple volunteers across the city. So when we decided that we we're doing a staff, appre- we didn't even get a chance to do a staff appreciation day throughout the campaign. That's how hard we worked. Yeah. I said, I'm gonna make sure it's make sure it's right. And to make it count. So everything was intentional. We picked Barber's Hall, which is the oldest Black-owned uh, bar establishment here in the city. That was intentional. Um, we made sure that it was in North Philly, so it's easy for transportation. And I'm a North Philly girl, so I have to represent North Philly. And we wanted everyone to be there. And it needed to accommodate everyone. And that's what it did. Like, I had my folks coming from all over the city and out of the city. Um and we wanted to be an experience because we worked hard and it was time to celebrate. And it was like a victory, um, especially when people say your vote doesn't count. I'm getting a little emotional because as I was talking to people on doors and they were saying their votes don't count. And I said, 
if I win, it's proof that every vote counts. All 56,000 plus that you got. Well, <laughs> yes. Yeah, when they were coming in, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to win. <laughs> like, it's like, and our goal was only 40,000. So we exceeded our goal. You got, uh, you know, a couple months before the actual swearing in. What will you use this time for? Planning. So I'm taking these few days to rest, just to regroup. And I'm going full-fledged ahead, meeting folks, um, setting a plan, getting my office in order. Um because like I said, I plan on hitting the ground running. And so you had a lot of small donors, lots of folks supporting you. Um, any words to those folks as you, you know, you gear up to step into this this reality that you all created together? It's not over. I'm going to need as much support as I had running this race to make it through these next four years. If we really want to fight and uh, set the policies that we talked about in this campaign, I'm going to need everyone of those 56,000 voters to stay with me through these next four years. Council person elect Kendra Brooks, congratulations. Enjoy your much deserved rest and I look forward to seeing you in city council, seeing what you get to do. Thank you so much. Next up, they've created a home away from home for South Jersey veterans, a Linda Wall Center and its upcoming facelift. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint KYW. And we here at KYW, we are all about community. And One South Jersey-based nonprofit provides veterans with a home away from home. Named after the late U.S. Marine Captain Carlton R. Rowe, the center provides a place for vets to congregate, learn, teach, mentor, and inspire through education and therapy programs. Here to tell us more about the Carlton R. Rowe Veterans Center is Senior Director for Community Relations of Spectra Care Foundation, Kathleen Van Stein. Welcome to Flashpoint, Kathleen. Thank you. So, first of all, what is the Carlton Rowe Veterans Center? Sure. The Carlton Rowe Veterans Center is for veterans in our local community to come and be together, and we provide program and services such as equine therapy for PTSD. We're going to be doing arts and healing. We're going to have computer workstations. We're going to be providing meals for veterans in the community Mm. and many other programs that we are in the work developing as we speak. Wonderful. So who was Captain Carlton Rowe? Carlton Rowe was one of the Medal of Honor Congressional Awardees who threw his body on top of his men to save them from a grenade. And he lived in Linden Ward, New Jersey, which is where our center is located. And his daughter and son-in-law are so excited that we named the center after him. When he was alive, he did a lot of community services for the veterans right in his own home. Wow. So So he was a very much a community-oriented person. Yes. Um, and so, you know, Monday is Veterans Day, and it's a time when we recognize services. Why was this center created in the first place? Well, we actually were um, founded in 2015, um, dedicated to serving veterans, at-risk seniors, and at-risk animals through our foundation. And we developed the cohort group because we felt that they represented the most vulnerable in our society, who are frequently neglected. 
we don't take away from charities that do a lot of work with children, but we wanted to focus on the veteran animals and seniors at risk. I am a social worker for 30 years, and I work with veterans in the community. They are entitled to ease and attendance benefits program, which um, a lot of the veterans are not aware of. So in our center, we decided to develop a place where the local vet can come to to get information, to do therapy, to do services, to teach, inspire. And one of the things that we're really excited about is mixing the younger vets with the older vets and how they can help one another. Yeah, because um, veterans have very unique issues and, and they get along with each other because they understand what folks are going through. Tell me what they're designed to help the vets with. One of our programs is the equine therapy program, and it helps veterans with PTSD. We're also working with the local animal shelters, and we would like to place a disabled animal with a disabled vet because they can relate and it helps them with depression, anxiety. And one of the things that we're also doing is with arts and healing is to allow themselves to express how they feel, whether it be sad or love or anger, because along with our art therapist, she's also a behavior, behaviorist, and she works with the veterans. That's wonderful. And so, and then the pets actually probably provide some support as well. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> wonderful. And so, um, do you have anything coming up this coming weekend or in the next couple of weeks? We are doing community programs off-site right now. Our center is going to be renovated by Home Depot. Oh. Home Depot gave us one of the largest grants um, to renovate the whole entire center And then hopefully after the holidays, we'll be doing our first opening house and the veterans can come to the center. And now what we're looking at is our local supporters who want to help veterans to give us support. Because in order to be able to provide these programs, we would need donations. So what's going to be the big transformation of the center? Right now, it's in a very raw state. Uh, My husband and I, who are the founders of the foundation, actually gave our retirement money to purchase the building. Uh, It's an older building, and it needs some tender love and care. Wonderful. And how much was the donation from them? Uh, It it equals to about 40000 Congratulations on that. That's a huge deal. And so this was the Veterans Day gift, I guess. Yes, it is. The transformation of the center. And so where can people provide you support? By either volunteering through, through our foundation. All of our volunteers do not take $1 from the foundation. And we're very proud to say that. All funds that are received goes back into the Veterans Service Center. We are also going to be buying fresh food So if someone identifies a vet in the community that's eating poorly, we're going to be able to provide them meal and nutritional education. And the center is also going to be having many different healthcare professionals coming in and educating the veterans. We're also looking for a donation for a van to be supported so that we can take our veterans to the farm where the horses will be located. Wonderful. And money? Yes. To buy supplies full of all of our programs. Absolutely. Wonderful. And what's the website? 
www.spectracarefoundation.org. Wonderful. So I want to say thank you uh, to you, Kathleen Van Stein, for uh, Carlton Rowe Veterans Center. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You could also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there is an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. Our closing quote is a salute to our veterans. A true hero isn't measured by the size of their strength, but by the strength of their heart. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.